focus on the long term. It's so easy to get caught up in the short term, to get caught up in the now, get caught up in the now, get caught up in the panic of the moment. And we totally lose sight of the long term. Keep your focus on the long term and the goals that you've set for that. That's where your effort needs to be. Hi guys, today we are joined all the way from Idaho in Nebraska by Mark Hunter. He is a, wow, he's just a, a Fortune 200 company coach. Uh, he is known as the sales hunter and he really does show companies and salespeople how to maximize profits by prospecting more effectively and a whole bunch more. Um, so he is from Seattle originally, but he speaks all over the world, or at least this was prior to COVID. Uh, but he speaks um, pretty much like over 200 days a year, really, uh, to global corporations and associations. So uh, Mark is really known um, for his high energy, fast paced presentations and just his wealth of knowledge as it relates to sales. Now, the context for this episode is just so important, right? Because you know, um, COVID-19, you know, sales is, is just, you know, more important than ever. Um, and so we really do double down into a whole bunch of really interesting angles to sales that we haven't covered before. Um, for instance, how do you cover or discover rather the price ceiling for a product or solution that you're offering? Where does the number actually stop? Um, we also talk about this idea of momentum habits. So pay careful attention to that. Uh, we also um, dive into this idea of leadership in sales. Like how do you get the most out of your people when they are not uh, being as successful as they would like to be? And a whole bunch more. So I'm really, really excited to bring you this uh, particular episode. So just um, keep in mind, Mark um, does spend a lot of time. He's spoken on stage with uh, the likes of Seth Godin, Simon Sinek, Jill Conrath, Ariana Huffington, Tony Robbins, Tim Saunders and many, many others. Um, and also check out thesaleshunter.com for more of his stuff. So without further ado, guys, please enjoy this cracking edition of the Matt Brown Show. And without further ado, enter Mark Hunter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. Today, we are joined by Mark Hunter, aka The Sales Hunter. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on today. Looking forward to it. Mark, um, we're going to be talking about uh, your book here. I'm going to bring it up on uh, on screen so everybody can catch this live in the feed. Uh, but it's A Mind for Sales, Daily Habits and Practical Strategies for Sales Success. So uh, we have covered uh, sales quite a lot on the show. So I'm very, very excited to uh, to get into it with you. We always get incredible downloads every time we talk about anything sales related. So for obvious reasons, Mark, as I'm sure you can agree. Uh, Mark, uh, but for those of our viewers and audience, our listeners all around the world on the podcast, uh, was it a vodcast now? Don't really know. <laughs> uh, but uh, give us the elevator pitch, Mark. Um, who are you? What are you about? And then we can take it from there. Well, sure. The elevator pitch is pretty simple when it comes to a mind for sales. We're all in sales. I don't care what your job is. And we're all out there selling every day. As you like to say, business is war. You're mm. right. Selling is war. And the challenge is the biggest obstacle we face is not our customers. The biggest obstacle we face is in our own mind. And like myself, I didn't set out to be in sales. There really aren't too many people that when they were, were a little kid, oh, I want to be a salesperson. No, I don't think that's really high on the, on the job want list when you're 10 years of age. I fell into sales. And I struggled. I struggled initially 
I was not an overnight success. But what I finally realized was when you put the customer first and you take the time to listen to the customer and understand the customer and you change your own mindset, it's amazing how things begin to go right. That's what the book A Mind for Sales is all about. All right. What was the uh, sort of spark that, um, you know, you woke up one morning and you were like, you know what, this is a book I need to write. I need to get it out of me. Like, to walk us, take us back to the beginning. Where did the spark come from to, to put this book together? Yeah, it, it really came from my first book. This is the third. This is the third book I've written. The first book I wrote was High Profit Selling, which was about how to maximize price. And people really liked that book, but they said, hey, Mark, um, how do I find the right people to sell to? So that's what caused me to write High Profit Prospecting, which is really a very prescriptive book because it's got scripts, it's got email samples, it's got everything in there to really help you prospect. And I thought, this is it. I'm done. My mission in life is complete. I can go home now. People began calling me saying, okay, this is great. I know how to do it, but I'm just struggling. I can't do it. And what happened was I realized it was their mindset. Their mindset was not in the right place. And when I took a look back and saw my own journey in sales, I realized I had been in that same point. So that's really what caused me to write the book, A Mind for Sales. I really kind of call it, it's really Star Wars. I'm just doing all the prequels. (laughs) That's well said. Uh, Mark, um, you've mentioned a few things I want to double down on. Um, one was, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's kind of dealing with your own kind of, let's just say, barriers to being a great salesperson. Um, and you mentioned mindset being another one as well. Um, you know, if you think about sales, which obviously you do a lot of, and so do, so do you know, I've done plenty in my time. <clears throat> so I've got a massive sales team as well. And so we do sales all the time. And it's interesting for me to observe that personality wise it's you know i don't think you kind of you can spot a mark hunter you know what i'm saying uh straight away personality wise some people just don't like the barrier that they put in place for themselves as a case in point rejection right so if you pick up the phone time and time again rejection is a tough thing to deal with especially if you don't like the way it feels um and i wanted to get into that with you i mean what are some of those barriers that you have encountered? Rejection being obviously an obvious one that we all have to deal with in sales. But more importantly, I'd really like to get your view around how do you overcome these things? And, and you know, maybe you could double down on this idea of mindset. Wow. Well, <clears throat> this episode is now going to run eight hours in length by the time <laughs> I get through all this. So this, this is good. Hey, here's what it simply comes down to is the fact that we don't know why we do what we do. Now, think about this. I don't, you know, I didn't wake up this morning saying, man, I hope 100 people slam the phone down on my face today. I hope I get 100 people yelling and screaming at me. I don't think you did either, okay? Nobody wakes up. Nobody likes rejection. Let's not kid ourselves, but let's put rejection into place. And here's a little piece that I want you to think about. If you know you can help somebody, then it's your obligation to reach out to them. Now, let's again, let's back this up even further. Nobody woke up this morning thinking, I really hope Mark Hunter calls me this morning. It, it just doesn't happen. I, you know, I, I don't think, Matt, I don't know about your mother. I don't even know if your mother woke up this morning saying, I hope my son calls me today. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the whole situation. 
people are not expecting our call. They don't want us to be reaching out because they don't know we can help them. Here's what I want you to do. I want every person listening, every person watching this, I want you to take a piece of paper and I want you to make a list. I want you to make two columns. Left-hand column, I want you to write down all of your current customers. I want you to write down all of your customers. On the right-hand column next to that, I want you to write down the outcomes that you've helped each one of those customers achieve. No, it's not what you sold. It's not the service or the product. It's the outcome that you sold them. Example, you may sell software. Okay, So you sold a company, XYZ company, and you sold them software. No, what you sold them was you sold them a solution to allow them to process payroll faster. You sold them a solution to help them do. See, you sold them an outcome. What you want to zero in on are the outcomes. And when you make this list, you're going to look at this list and you're going to go, wow, I've really made a difference. Because nobody buys anything. Nobody buys anything. They invest in things because they want an outcome. So I look at this list and I go, that's a pretty cool list. And when you focus in on the outcomes, it's amazing how it changes how you sell, because now you're focused in on helping the customer. When I first got into sales, I was fired from my first two sales jobs. Now, that's a story I'll, I'll leave for the book, but I got fired because I was, I was successful, but I was treating the customer as just sell as quickly as possible, get their money, and move on to the next customer. That was my whole attitude. And it wasn't until my third sales job that my manager pulled me aside and began to really ask me the questions. Why was I in sales? Did I think I was making a difference? What is the purpose of what I'm doing? All these questions that began to call into play that I was focusing on the wrong thing. I was focusing on the product I was selling and not the outcome. When I can focus on the outcome, now it begins changing. It changes the questions I ask. It changes how I listen. And it changes my mental outlook about how I can help you. Because I no longer see you as money. I see you as being able to help you. Let me, let me give you an example. Because there, there are a lot of customers that they don't know we can help them. They do not know we can help them. And my argument is, if I have the ability to help someone, it's my obligation to reach out to them. If you were driving down a highway, and you came across an accident and there was nobody else there, but you could see that people were hurt. You would not say, well, I don't know those people. I don't know those people. So I'm just going to call emergency and drive on. No, you would stop and help them. You would, sure, you'd call, you'd call for help, but you would stop and help them. Now, they, didn't, they don't know you. You don't know them but you know you're in a position that you can help them. See, this is the attitude we have to take towards sales. If I have the ability to help someone, then it's my obligation. Now, let me share one more piece on this. Here's the problem though. Too many salespeople say, well, gee, I'm I'm just calling people. I'm just calling people. I don't have any clue. Well, let me tell you something. If you're just calling people, uh, that's like calling, I have a dog and uh, my dog has got a heartbeat, just like a human being. But my dog is never going to buy anything from me. It, my dog is never going to buy anything from me. You see, what we have to do is we have to focus in 
on who are the people who are most likely to buy from us. So take that list that I was telling you to make, the list of customers and outcomes, and look at that list of customers and, and ask yourself this question. What do they have in common? Can I begin putting them into buckets? Can I begin defining who is my perfect customer? I, I really like to say, I want to create an avatar. I want to create an avatar of my best customer. What do they look like? What do they do? You know, where are they at? What type of business are they in? All these things about them. Now, I may create two or three avatars. These are the people. These are the types of people I want to focus in on. Don't waste time with other people just because they have a heartbeat. You'll wind up trying to sell to my dog. Focus on the people who have the ability to say, hmm, I think I like what you have to offer. How do you figure that out, though? I mean, I know you mentioned listed current customers versus the outcomes. The thing, the th- what's interesting for me is that you get these two kinds of school, uh, two sort of paradigms or schools of thoughts, where one is you make the market, and the other one is you let the market dictate to you where you should go. Yep. Um, and so you may, especially if you haven't got a, like a long sales history. So even if you have current customers, you may only have five. But five is very different to 100, and 100 is very different to 500. And so obviously, you know, and so the more you sell, the, the more the customer actually changes. I mean, we, we found that as a company ourselves is that, you know, when we started to do pipeline generation for technology companies, they weren't all made the same. So you, to your point, I love the idea about avatars, but um, I guess where, where do you land? I mean, what is the school of thought that you subscribe to when it comes to figuring out who actually is my ideal customer? Okay, let, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, when he came out with the iPhone about 12 years ago now, you know, when he first came out with the iPhone, I don't know, but... I had a flip phone. I had a flip phone at that. I had a Motorola flip phone and I had a Palm Pilot and I thought I was pretty cool. Oh, I had a laptop computer. I thought I was pretty cool. Steve Jobs comes out with an iPhone and that initial iPhone had a camera, had a music player, had a computer and it was a phone all in one device. And I looked at that and I go, I don't need that. I have my Motorola flip phone and my Palm Pilot. I don't need that. I don't need a camera. I don't need a music player. Now, a few years later, I could not live without my smartphone. Now, what did Steve Jobs do? Steve Jobs had no market when he came out with the iPhone. There was was never a device like that before. But Steve Jobs knew that this was a problem that people had because he knew that he could create the market because he knew that people needed a better communication device. They knew that there were people walking around with a Sony Walkman or whatever it was. They knew that they were walking around. And he said, I think I can consult. See, he was not focused on the device. He was focused on the outcome that it was going to create. Because he said, wait a minute, if I create this phone, this iPhone, it's going to allow people to take pictures. It's going to allow people to now email pictures. It's now going to allow people to do all these things. You see, he wasn't focused on the device. Now, the, the device was beautiful in you know, Steve Jobs' design, Apple design, but it was the outcome. And so you may not know, and you say, I got to create the market. 
zero in on what is the outcome you're trying to create. This means what you have to do is don't create a product or a service looking for a problem to solve. Find a problem to solve and go upstream and say, what is the product or service I'm going to create to help solve that? Yeah, that's a great point of departure because I'd love to get your view, Mark, on you know the primary differences between the way that you would sell a product versus the way that you would sell a solution. Because if you think about the use case for a technology product, it's the same use case for the same problem over and over again. But now if you shift gears into solution selling where you might be saying, okay, well, it's this product, then it's this you know, additional service, and then it's a third-party training company that I'm going to bring in. So, so ultimately, the, the problem starts to become something that's quite use case specific to obviously then, now, well, this is actually like business case specific. So I'd love to get your view on what are the, some of those primary differences in your experience. And then when you are looking to sell something like a product versus a solution, in what way do you sell differently? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, what you have to do is you got to look downstream, as far downstream as possible. What you have to begin to ask yourself is, okay, who is the customer I'm going to sell to? But more importantly, who is their customer? And who is their customer? The further downstream you go, the more you're going to be able to create the right solution that they're looking for. Let me give you an example. I might be selling, I might I'd be selling a very standard. Let, let, let's let's just use, let's just say it's pipe. I'm selling pipe. Now, pipe can be used for any number of different things, but what is it that's going to be in the pipe? See, what's going to be in the pipe is going to make a dramatic difference as to the value I'm going to place on the pipe. And oh, what's in the pipe and what it does is going to be that much more different. For instance, if this pipe was just hauling water. And I was in an area of the world where there's plenty of water. It's no big deal. However, if I was now hauling, if I was uh, moving oil, we'll say, and I was in a very oil scarce area of the world, suddenly that pipe becomes a lot more important. See, it's not the pipe. It's the service that the pipe is going to do. And more importantly, all the way downstream. In other words, what's this water going to be used for? What's this oil going to be used for? What's this chemical going to be used for? What's this, what's this, whatever it is, the further downstream you go, what you do is you have the ability to come back upstream and create more value 
for the customer. Because the customer initially may be looking at it as just pipe, just pipe. But if they begin to realize all of the implications that that pipe is used for, what goes through the pipe, then they're going to change how they look at the pipe and the expectations they have from the pipe. But I got to go all the way downstream as far down as possible. Fair enough. Um, where does it all fall flat then? In your, I know in your book you talk about minefields and mine traps. Um, where, what, are, <laughs> what are we talking about when we use those sorts of terms in the context of selling? Um, and you know, could you maybe provide some practical examples about how we overcome some of these mind traps and minefields, whether you're trying to sell product or solution? Sure. Here's something. One of the biggest mind traps is when the customer says, oh, well, just give me the price. Just give me the price. You see, here's the whole challenge. I don't, I'm not going to put any price out on the table to anybody until I understand what is the critical need that they have. You see, this is the number one mind trap, minefield that people fall into. Customer is engaged with them and they may be right at the beginning. And the customer says, well, just tell me what the price is. And what happens is the, the salesperson automatically thinks the customer is ready to buy. No, the customer is not ready to buy. They're probably ready to disqualify you. Now, what I want to do is I have to find out what is the outcome. So that's one of the pieces. The other big critical mind trap is trying to race too quickly to the close. Whoa, what did he just, yeah, it's racing too quickly to the close. Here's what's very interesting. When you and I are in a, in a buying selling transaction and you're about ready to buy and I'm trying to sell you, that's the negotiation phase. That is the negotiation phase. And at that point, whatever information you know you share with me mm, could be used against you. So you're going to hedge everything that you share with me. See, what I want to do is I want to spend more time up in the prospecting phase. Because in the prospecting phase, my objective is to create trust. The higher the degree of trust and confidence I create with you, the easier it is for me to close the sale. Because if there's no trust or confidence between the two parties, the negotiations are going to be rough. They're going to be rough. If there's a high degree of trust and confidence, really, there's very little negotiation. So what I want to do is I want to take early on, I want to take the time to develop the trust and confidence. But here's the other piece. During this phase is when I get the really good information. This is when I get the really good insights as to what it is you're trying to do. One of the questions I love asking, and, and this is you know, if, if I'm in a complex sale, I'm talking with a prospect and there's a little bit of interest there and go, so, so what's been the process you've used in the past to make decisions for products like this? And I love asking that question just that manner. And what, it's not a threatening question, but it's just getting them to share. And I'm sitting there on the other end. I'm just listening. I'm listening. Um, well, we go to this committee, we get this person involved, we get this. What, what, what is that? That's given me incredible intel. And that would be incredible intel that is going to help me because if I didn't find that out and I get all the way down to the end and then that says, oh, now I got to go to the committee. I got to go to the committee. Well, all that work has been for a waste. I want to find this information out up front. I want to find out information up front. So, Walk me through 
how the installation process might go. Walk me through where you see this really coming into play in your company. And I love doing this early on. Now, here's why. Customers actually like these questions because what it's doing is it's demonstrating to them, wow, this salesperson actually cares. This salesperson actually cares about the installation, cares about how it's going to be used, cares, is actually asking me questions that are pertinent to me. And what does it do? It warms the customer up. It helps to create that level of trust and confidence. But here's the challenge. See, here's the challenge. Most salespeople are afraid to ask those questions. They're afraid to ask those questions because they've been taught or in their mindset, this is another big minefield, mind trap, is the fact that, oh, I can't ask any customer a question that I don't have the answer to because otherwise I'll look bad. I can't, I can't ask that question because I don't know what the answer is. Big mistake, big minefield. My goal is to ask you questions that I don't have the answer to and you don't have the answer to. Whoa, that's the head spinner. Yes, it is a head spinner. And what does it do? It creates a conversation. It creates a conversation. This is how sales are made. Tell me, Mark, um, how do you deal with objections? So um, one of the things that um, my team does is that they just agree. <laughs> so if the customer is like, whatever they say, whatever, literally, I actually apply this, by the way, in um, in my personal life with my wife. <laughs> because, and uh, That's how you stay married. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's how you stay married, right? It's just like, yes, my love. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Whatever. It's like I couldn't, because you said it right up front, which I love, which was, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like we're all in the business of selling. So either you're doing the selling or someone's selling you. So if you're doing the selling, you have to figure out, well, how do you deal with objections? Because obviously, you know, to your point, trust and rapport is so important, right? And if you don't have that trust and rapport, um, you're never going to get that sale. And I love the tips that you gave around asking those questions to help build that trust and rapport. Uh, But then in that same process, when you start getting into the kind of outside of the discovery phase or step, uh, you're getting into the, well, now let's talk about the numbers and the solution blueprint and the scope of work or whatever that looks like. And so in that particular step, you're then dealing with objections. So, um, so you know, as I mentioned, one of those is just agreeing. No, I couldn't agree with you more, Mark, that it's not the right time to buy or that we are expensive or that, you know, perhaps it's not, uh, maybe I should be talking to a different person inside the business, whatever. Um, so it, I find that works really, really well because it makes the prospect the person that you're looking to engage with feel like you care about what they have to say or that their point of view matters to you as the salesperson, right? Which is another way to to articulate what you've said. Um, But I'd love to get your view, uh, Mark, in the context of every, all this preamble that I mentioned, what are some of the secrets that you've uncovered in your sales experience that relates to overcoming concrete objections from uh, you know, from within the sales process? How do you deal with objections? Sure. Let, let me walk you through a very quick example. I was on the phone. I had a company that wanted to hire me. They wanted to bring me in to speak at their sales meeting and do some training with their sales force. And uh, we had figured out all the reasons. And the reason why was because the reason they were looking at me is because they were having a major competitor 
that was coming into their marketplace. And this major competitor was expected to take anywhere between 20 and 30% of their business. We've negotiated a deal we feel good with. And the CEO wants to get involved. CEO calls me and he goes, Mark, we want to hire you, but your fee is way out of line. It's way too high. You need to reduce your fee. Now you're sitting there thinking, hey, I wonder how much Mark reduced his fee. This was my response. I can't change. I, I said, I will not change the fee. I'll change the value. By the way, how much business do you expect to lose from the new competitors coming into the marketplace? Silence. After about five seconds, he says, that was good. You're hired. You see, he was asking me for a discount. It would have been easy. I could have given him a discount. Sure, it's my company. It's my company. I can do what I want with pricing. I can give him a discount. But that's not what he needed. What he needed was a solution because he was going to lose all his business. He, he paused and he said, that was good. You're hired. Because he said, and then he went on to say, you're hired because you understand what my problem is. And that's what my sales team has an issue with. They do not sit there and take the time to understand the needs of the customer. They just, whatever the customer says, they do. Now think about that for a moment. When I hear an objection from a customer, and I got no problem hearing objections, I want to take that objection. I want to do two things with it. One, I want to really understand if it's a real objection. Because I don't think for this gentleman, it was really an objection about price. In the grand scheme of things, with the amount of money that company makes and my fee, it it wasn't an issue. No. But see, I could have given him a discount. He would have been happy. But I probably would not have gotten the deal. I would not have closed the deal. Because he wanted to see how I was going to stand up to him because he was trying to measure me as to how salespeople would stand up to their salespeople, you know, to their customers. Now, let's put this in the context of us right here, right now. When I hear an objection, I want to do two things. One, I want to find out if it's the real objection. Chances are it's not. So I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you. So help me understand a little more about what you mean. Now, I love asking that question just in that matter. Help, help, me, help me understand a little bit more. Because I want to get them to elaborate a little bit more on it. B, what I'm trying to get to is very simply this. I'm going to take whatever the real objection is and tie it back to the problem. I want to tie it right back to their problem. When I tie it back to their problem, then suddenly it's like, whoa, because nobody buys anything. They invest. They invest. And they'll invest a price if they see a return on investment. Yeah, I love that. I think there's a, few, a couple of things I'd love to get into with you. I think I'm, I'm recognizing consultative selling in the way that you, you're articulating, like asking all these questions and really understanding the problem and how they buy and what's the process, how have they bought the similar thing before and you know, framing your price in the context of the problem. Which, um, which we started to do quite a lot actually as a company when we're solving like an aged hardware problem, which is massive, 
right, in hardware technology. Um, and we're saying, you know, and we're saying, well, look, we cost X, but, you know, look at the, the millions that you have in this P&L problem and your working capital's stuck up in there and whatever. Um, so I find that the stuff that you're saying is, is, is very, very important for our audience. Um, I wanted to um, double down on this idea of competing on price versus stacking your value. So uh, when you are a startup, in many cases, you, you just have to win. You have to make dollars. Um, and so uh, you you will compete on price if you need to keep the lights on. Uh, so that's one context. The other context is, well, you know, hang on, I'm actually going to charge you a premium. I'm going to charge you the Ferrari price, right? As opposed to the VW Polo <laughs> or the Beetle uh, because we're worth that or whatever. And, and to your point, you can start to either take that price point and frame it in the context of the size of the problem. Um, and, um, and yeah, and this is kind of really the preamble to my question, which is when do you, when do you choose to compete on price versus when do you choose to compete? On, on value? Well, here's the whole thing. Early on, it's, it's very easy to be competing on price because I need cash. I, I call it cash flow pricing. I just got to create enough experience. Now, early on, you may do that. But what I tell people, if you're a small business and you need to do some cash flow pricing, what you do is you do that with one vertical, one channel in your business. And that's the one that you're willing to discount your prices. That's willing you to do it. You're willing to do that. But over in your main business, you do not do that. Now, here's why. Because what happens is, before you know it, you're going to become established as the cheap kid. You're going to become established. And, and, and you can't risk that. So new businesses, when I'm working with new business, I say take one channel, one vertical, set them up as your cash flow pricing, everybody else full price. Now, here's the whole situation with regards to price. And this is what I tell people. When you're putting price on the table, the customer has no context with how to view it, with how to put it into play. So I always put my price in context with the solution they're, they're trying to solve. For instance, you said Ace Hardware, right? They have millions and millions of dollars tied up in inventory. Mm. And basically, well, you can call that working capital, but really a lot of it's non-working capital. So if I can reduce this because of your system, that's significant. It can have significant. If you can increase turn, increase all of these issues that come into play, huge. But here's what you do. You put two offers on the table to the customer. The first offer you put on the table is the high priced offer. I did this just the other day. I had a client who wanted to do some work for me. New client. We went through all the discovery phase. And, over. and, this, and we put on, on the table this really cool package, really great solution. And they threw up over it. <laughs> they threw up over it. They didn't like it. It's okay. I had the standard normal package that I then put on the table to them. They looked at it and go, perfect. We'll take it. Now, see, what's interesting is I could have put the standard offer on the table to begin with. And you know what? They probably would have said, can you give me a discount? Can you give me a discount? Can you shave the price a little bit? But because it was contrasted with the most expensive, with this really expensive one, they thought it was a great deal. See, so sometimes we have to create the contrast for the customer. Don't hesitate to put on the table multiple offers. Now, what's very interesting is when we do this two-step price offer, in other words, I put the most expensive one on the table and I let them respond to it. I, they don't know I have another package. They don't know. 
But then I'll say, okay, well, here, I've got another option for you that we can look at. Boom, put it on the table. Now, if they don't like that one, I still have a third option. I have what I call the skinny option. And the skinny option is my highest margin. I'm going to make the most amount of money, but it is going to be low priced. So in terms of total dollars, no, I'm not making a lot of dollars, but I'm making a lot of margin. But I'm going to be willing to go in with that. And what it's going to do is going to leave them so hungry. They're going to want more. It's like, it's like going into a restaurant and saying, wait a minute, I, I, I can't afford that most expensive meal. All I can afford is the appetizer. But you eat the appetizer and you go, oh, that was good. I got to buy more. I got to have more. See, So don't hesitate to have different price levels. But make sure in all of them, you ensure price integrity. Because when I put this high-priced offer out there, it had a lot of things in it, a lot of things in it that are not in the standard offering. So they can quickly see that there is, there is a difference. It's not like I just, it's not like I, re, I did not reduce the price. I took things out of the offer. You have to make, make sure you maintain price integrity. Yeah, um, I was once... And well, given I don't know if I read it or someone told me or whatever, but um, maybe this was even predating the SaaS, you know, sort of ecosystem now where we play a lot, where you've got you know bronze, silver, gold, platinum, you know, sort of four different mm-hmm. price points. You're a hundred, two fifty, whatever, and it goes up to a thousand. Um, and then in those buckets, as you said, you you stack your value, right? So, well, most popular is gold, and that's you know a thousand dollars. But you also get these things. You get robust analytics, whatever. Whereas in these other packages, you don't. Um, I'd love to get your view. Is it true to say, or have you ever come across this idea that if you present a a, a prospect with with three offers or four, that they're likely not to choose anything at all? But if you presented yes, them, that with, is correct. It is correct. Okay, fantastic. Please, yeah. can you explain yeah. that to our audience? What happens is you're actually confusing the customer. You're giving them too many options, and then the customer says, "You know what? I'm just going to wait, and I, 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 I'm going to look around some more." Go back a few years ago, and if if you remember when laptop computers, or even even smartphones. When they were upgrading every six, eight months, every six, eight months, there was a new one coming out. There was a new one coming out. And you just reach that point. There's so many decisions to make. I'm just going to stay with what I have. You want to give the customer an option. But your job in sales is to not give them too many options. That's why I say I put the most expensive one on the table and then I put the one. That's it. That's it. I don't put, hey, go ahead and do it. Because the biggest competitor we face is not the competitor is the customer choosing not to make a decision mm-hmm. think about that right the, the customer just says you know what we're going to put off putting we're not going to make a decision we're just not going to make a decision right yeah it's it's fascinating isn't it um because you would think well if i present you know three or let's just say keep it simple if i present three options to to you I, you know and you can see or look if your budget's a hundred this is for you. If your budget's three times that, so it's you know blah blah blah. You would think logically and rationally that um, that that would actually be put it being customer centric in the way you know what I mean. Like this, oh, you, you would think that he, you know what I mean. It's here's weird. Example. Here's the example I use. Watch somebody going into a department store. Okay, watch somebody going into a department store, and if they see rack after rack after rack of clothes 
what do they want to do? They want to look at all. They, they, they want to look at all of them. And and then they go, well, maybe there's another store. Maybe there's somebody else I should look at versus if you just had one or two racks. And here's the decision. It you want the key is you want to make it simple for the decision. And it will the customer you see the reason the customer wants variety is because you haven't created trust. The higher the degree of trust you create, the less options the customer is looking for. Because hmm. if they don't trust you, they want to see everything. They want to look, they want to look at everything out there. And they'll be very hesitant to say, I'm not going to buy. Yeah, it's interesting. Big I had, risk. I had Roger Dooley on the show. He wrote this book uh, called Friction. And uh, it was actually about e-commerce specifically and how, or in fact, not just e-commerce, but I'm using e-commerce as the obvious reference here. And that's, you know, if you go to Amazon and you buy your book, uh, which I'll bring up on green again, go buy it, guys, A Mind for Sales uh, by Mark Hunter. Um, you know, you can actually see here, uh, see all buying options. Um, and then you've got a one-click checkout. So it's, it's, a, it's a frictionless transactional process. Right. And which is interesting yeah. when you're talking about a value proposition design for me is like the, f- the first thing you start with when you start a business because that changes literally everything, um, uh, literally everything. Um, and so when you introduce these three options, it introduces friction, right, to your, to your point there, uh, Mark. Um, when I want to kind of almost shift the gears slightly um, and talk about if you are going to present a high-pitched offer like you mentioned – um, how do you discover the price ceiling for what you offer? The, the, the price ceiling is in direct relationship to the value the company places on the outcome they're going to receive. The, the example I like to use is back in the days when we all used to fly before this, this whole pandemic, yeah. there may be a route between two cities. And if you were a grandmother going to visit the grandkids and you had a very flexible schedule, you would take absolutely the cheapest flight, the cheapest ticket possible, because that was just, you know, why spend more money? It doesn't matter if I go at two o'clock or three o'clock, it doesn't matter. I'll go. Now, if you're a business person who is going to make an incredible deal and must be back on time to be able to make it to another meeting, then guess what? Time is of the essence. And you, the business person, are willing to pay considerably more for that exact same flight, but you'll pay more. And you'll be happy to pay more because the time, the schedule, everything is right, fixed for what you want to do. Same plane. Both people get to point B at the exact same time. One was willing to pay a lot more than the other. So what you have to do is you have to figure out what is the value that the customer is looking for. What's the value? And back your way into quantifying what that value is. That will begin to tell you what the price they're going to pay is. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by that because especially when, you know, when we're well, we're a young company, sort of three years old, and when we started art we literally promised the earth for, for almost no money <laughs> uh, to make sure that we won, you know. Um, and then the more we won, it was like, well, let's, you know, add another 50,000 on. Let's add another 50,000 on, another 50,000. And eventually you just wind up and you, and it was funny because we found old proposals, Mark, it's hilarious. 
you find old proposals that you started out with like three years ago and you literally look at it and you go, what the hell was this? Because now you promise, you're charging 100 times, like 50 times or 10 times the price, but you're promising way less and it's still getting over the line. It's fascinating for me trying to you know, work with the, the market and letting the market dictate, well, where is the ceiling actually? It is absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that I, I love seeing in this it, it is the fact that price is more of an obstacle to the salesperson than the customer. Mm. The salesperson is more likely to offer a discount than the customer is to demand it because the salesperson doesn't believe in their own outcomes they can create. Yeah, I've, it's amazing. It is amazing, and I want to double down on that. Uh, the word "believe" that you that you mentioned there. I um, I've been reading Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. You know the Nike story. Have you read that book? Yes, excellent book. So he was talking about when he was selling um, encyclopedias in Hawaii, and he said he sucked as a salesman. But then when he when he started to sell shoes he started to sell shoes like he could actually sell shoes he kind of got over his own you know in a in a imposter syndrome if you like um and he 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 said quite clearly that it was because he 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 believed in what he was selling and he was passionate about running like and so the mm. customer also wanted a bit of that belief in what he was demonstrating to them um how does one I suppose this is relates to mindset in a sense, but how do you, um, you know, if you are battling to believe in the thing that you're selling, how do you shift gears? Yeah. And, and, and I love that book. Uh, read the book by Phil. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's a great read. Fascinating story. Now here's something very interesting. I see too many salespeople saying I can't sell this product because I don't believe in the product. I don't think you have to believe in the product. Whoa, there's a head spinner. Yes. Oh. I don't think you have to believe them. What you have to do is you have to believe in the outcome. What is the outcome? The product is purely the medium for you to be able to help the customer. Because what I find happening is so many salespeople will sit there and they'll say, well, if only we had this product, if only we had this version, if only we had this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. And then what happens is they play this if-then game. If manufacturing will give us this, then we can do this. And, and, and I tell salespeople, you're wasting your time. Focus on the outcome as to what the customer is looking for. Example, cars, automobiles. You, can, you mentioned Volkswagen earlier, okay? Now, a, a Volkswagen automobile is not going to appeal to every person out there. It's going to appeal to certain types of people. So maybe what you have is you have a product that you're trying to sell it to people who it doesn't fit. Sell it to who fits the market, the outcome. Zero in on the outcome and then back your way in. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, Mark, I want to um, shift gears and talk about um, this idea of momentum habits, which is kind of, you talk about it in your book. Um, please, can you explain very simply, what do you mean by a momentum habit? Yeah, here, here's what's very interesting. Momentum creates momentum. First of all, don't expect anybody to motivate you. Nobody can motivate anybody. Only you can motivate yourself. Now, others can help create an environment. I tell this to sales managers. It's not your job to motivate your people. It's only your job to create an environment for your people to motivate them. Now, 
what do we what do we call this? What I want to do is I want to create an element of success early in the morning. Every morning I have an element, I have something that I do that I know I'm going to be successful at quickly and early. And what does this do? It creates momentum. Hey, I got that done. Good. Boom. I move on to the next thing. I move on to the next thing. And this is especially critical on Monday mornings. Monday mornings, I want to start fast. I want to start hard. I want to start strong. So what I want to do is I want to set an objective. I want to set a goal that I know I can accomplish early in the morning. And it just gets me going. Momentum creates. Watch any sporting event. Isn't it amazing how when one team scores a goal, they come back and they score another goal? It, it's amazing because, you know, one player gets on a roll and it gets others on a roll. Success creates success. It's so true that, right? You have to win. You have to win at something. It's like I've, I've got a sales guy in my team and he's like, you know, been around for like two, three months and he's really battling still. Um, and to your point, I, I just don't think he has momentum. And But I think also in sales, you kind of oscillate, right? You go between, you know, times where you are just totally crushing it. And then in one month and the next month, you maybe don't hit your quota. You know what I'm saying? And then you got to kind of like take that in context of like, well, how far have I come uh, in this particular role? But to your point, though, I think that the role of a sales leader is critical in, in terms of man- managing the efficacy of your team and the chemistry between the team and you know helping them understand you know almost mentor them and guide them to to get them over the line at the end of the day um what would you uh, attribute as a great characteristic of a sales leader today where does the rubber hit the road well the the rubber hits the road in terms of it's your job to create culture you have to be able to live the, you have to be able to live and walk the talk. See, more than ever right now, I'm seeing authenticity, transparency, and values are being the key attributes that anybody's looking for. Authenticity, transparency, and values. People will follow people who they believe are authentic, transparent, and have values. Let's walk through three. Authentic. That means they're genuine. They're, they're not trying to be somebody they're not transparent. In other words, they're upfront. They're honest. They're telling them what's going on. Values. Their core mission in life, their core view of life lines up with your core view in life. This is what we're seeing in millennials and Gen X. Just blowing up in terms of what their expectations are. So I tell leaders, you've got to demonstrate all three of those. The other critical piece as a leader you have to do is you have to assume the value. Let's go back to Steve Jobs again. Steve Jobs had a wonderful line. He said, why is it that we hire really smart people and we tell them what to do? Shouldn't we be hiring really smart people and be letting them tell us what to do? Yeah. See, so the leader has to be confident in allowing their people to have voices to allowing their people to have opinions, to allowing their people to be able to to share and grow. And it's amazing when when you do those things, uh, authenticity, transparency, and values, and you allow people to have their voices and share, it's amazing what you create because the, the value of a person you hire should be at its lowest point on day one, their time with your company. That should be their lowest value. Each day, 
they should be able to be growing professionally and personally to be bringing themselves and the company more value every day. Um, Mark, uh, just a quick couple more questions and then I will wrap up with you. Um, what would I know there's lots of habits, right? There's act 10x action, take more action. Da, 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 da. Um, in your experience, what have you learned about the number one? If there was just one thing, one thing that any entrepreneur could do every day, if there was the one thing that you said, listen, for the next 12 months, just do this thing, what is that thing? Focus on the long term. Focus on the long term. It's so easy to get caught up in the short term, to get caught up in the now, get caught up in the now, get caught up in the panic of the moment. And we totally lose sight of the long term. Keep your focus on the long term and the goals that you've set for that. That's where your effort needs to be. Um, why do you think we get so it's, – it's a, it's a tensionous point that, isn't it? Because you feel that, you know, going back to the startup thing, it's like, well, I need to make money now. So, yes, you, you know, it's hard to think long-term when you're, when you're in this tension. You know what I mean? Um, uh, may, could you maybe, um, maybe add some more fuel to that idea when you say sure. focus on the long-term? Like, I mean, practically how does one do that when you, as a startup, potentially you're just trying to – you know, stay alive. Yeah. I, I, I was on a coaching call this morning, coaching a company in Europe. This is the owner of the company and they had lost three sales this morning. They had lost three sales and she was absolutely beside herself. And I said, hold on. What's the objective of the year? What's the objective of next year? What's focus? And, and I had to get her thinking she was so consumed with this, these three sales. She says, wait a minute, these are three significant sales. I, I understand that. I know that. And yeah, we want to figure out why we lost the sales. But we can't lose sight of the bigger picture. If we lose sight of the bigger picture, we're all we're going to do is wind up going through reacting. Because what she needed to do was get her company acting to build out this new opportunity that they're working on. And to spend less time reacting to what's happened in the past. But it starts with her. I said, you have to be focused on acting going forward. I realize it's hurt to cash flow. I realize it's hurt. But you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Tomorrow, may who knows? There may be some sales you wind up getting. To, you don't know. We've all been in business long enough to know that the the deepest valleys are never as deep as we think they are. And the highest mountains are never as high as they, as we think they are. It's amazing. The sun came up this morning and no matter how bad today is, you know what? Sun's going to come up tomorrow. So stay positive, basically. Stay positive. It is, it is there. I mean, I have, I have in my own company, we've been around 21 years and, and um, early on, there are some dark days. But you just keep you just keep going. You just keep just keep focused. And there are times that you say, is this going to work? And no, you just keep working. And, and I see this in business time and time and time again. You yeah. can you can make it, but keep your focus on the longer term, or it'll get swallowed up in the pity party of what's happening today. This is what's happening right now with the whole pandemic. I see people losing focus of the longer term. There will be a post-pandemic. There will be. We mm. will get back to normal. Don't get so focused on this right here that you lose sight of that out there. Yeah, that's such a great point. Such a great point. And just don't stop, basically. Just keep going. Who cares? You lose customer, win another one tomorrow, right? 
That's right. Uh, That's right. Mark, what would you say has been your greatest achievement? My greatest achievement, I think, has been really impacting thousands and tens of thousands of people the world over. Uh, yeah, I can say my, my business has been successful. That's great. But the outcome is that I've been able to positively impact tens of thousands, who knows, maybe hundreds of thousands by now of people all over the world to be able to help them experience sales at a higher level, experience life at a higher level, and be more successful. To me, that's, that's the greatest outcome. Mark, that's fun. That's what jazzes me every morning when I get up. Well, uh, that was my last question for you, but I just wanted to quickly see, I see you got the saleshunter.com branding in the back there. What, uh, what's that about? Well, it's, that is my real last name. No, not sales hunter. That's my real last name. <laughs> and the sales hunter, that's the website. Go out there. There's all kinds of things that I make available to people. Want you to check it out. Links to the YouTube channel, all those things. The book is a mind for sales. And I can't stress enough the importance of the book right now. Mm. It, it came out a few months, came out in April, right at the beginning of the pandemic here in the US. And, um, Wow. Uh, people said you wrote this book right now. And yeah, it is because it is really the, um, the medicine salespeople need to be taking right now to help them get through this period we're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, last one for you. Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? To be able to help people, to be able to influence people. My goal in life is to be able to help others see and achieve what they didn't think was possible. Hey, that's the definition of sales. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. Sales uh, is just the medium. I, I could have been a plumber. I could have been an electrician. Sales is just the medium I've chosen, and I'm so thankful for it. I love I love sales because I get to influence and impact people in a positive manner. That's what jazzes me every morning. Fantastic, Mark. Thank you guys uh, for checking in the show, and thanks for sticking around to the end. Uh, the book is A Mind for Sales. It is on Amazon. You get it on Kindle, audio, uh, uh, audio book, hardcover, paperback, whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time today, mate. I really appreciate it hanging out with you. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mathbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.